On today's show, I have Valerian Ruminski, and he is here to talk about a new album called Songs from Inside. He's got a background in opera. He is the founder and general director of the Nichols City Opera in Buffalo, New York. He has traveled the world singing opera on stage. He's got a bass, which I kind of like because I, I have a low singing voice too, but I can't sing like Valerian, but maybe he'll give me a few tips when we wrap it up. So welcome to the show, Valerian. Oh, happy to be here during these strange days. Hey, I have to mention the bass part because I think that bass singers never get as much attention as the tenors and baritones. So I always root for, for a true bass. Yeah, you know, most all the most popular music that is sung is by men is usually tenors you know the bass uh, very few basses have ever been on the charts uh sinatra was a baritone so i can sing everything in sinatra's key um but most every other famous pop singer and rock singer is usually a tenor well what's interesting about talking about opera and pop and rock is how, you know, you don't have any bias. Like, there's no snobbery with you. Whereas, you know, you sing opera, but, you know, you decided to do a pop album now. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about, like, in your background, did you start out, you know, purely wanting to sing opera, or did you have some pop music training in your background? No. um, Well, training partially because I've worked with Seth Riggs, who uh, is the famous Los Angeles voice teacher. He was Michael Jackson's teacher. He taught uh, um, Carol Burnett and Madonna and Michael Bolton and all that. And I've worked with him and I've learned his teaching technique and I teach based on his technique. But that was when I was in my late 20s and 30s. But when I was a a youngster and a teenager, I was a I was a. Uh, a blue-eyed soul singer. I, I used to love pop music on the radio, and I tried singing it, and I had a band and all that, but um, everything kept pushing me towards becoming a classical singer. It just I had the chops for it, and my voice was uh, suited for it, so it seemed uh, a shame not to go for the most I could go for with using the voice. So uh, mm-hmm. I took that path, and I've never, I've never abandoned pop music. I've been writing songs for 30 years, but uh, this is the first album I put together in about 20 years. I was reading a quote by you. You said, singing pop music is just as difficult as singing opera. Yes. I, sorry, your voice was going in and out. I, I couldn't hear if you the whole question. Oh, no, but, oh um, the quote was, singing pop music is just as difficult as singing opera. And I wonder your thoughts on that, because on the surface, it seems like opera would be a lot more difficult. No, it's deceptive. Um, opera, in one way, is much easier, because you are given every single note, every single word is written on the page for you by a great composer. You're being handed a plate, and all you have to do is pick it up and and um, and excite it. So there's not a lot of freedom that's involved when you learn an opera role and you sing it. You're singing a role that's been sung for a hundred and some years the same exact way by everyone who's ever sung it. But when you're doing pop music, you have a thousand choices. 
And especially if you're writing the song, you can choose the melody. You can choose what you're going to do with your voice. And um, the the biggest difference, of course, is that pop music and the appeal of pop music is largely based on the defect of a voice as opposed to the perfection of a voice. If you see what I mean, if you listen to Joe Cocker, for instance, or Seal, you hear rasp, you hear rattling, you hear garbage in the voice. And that's what makes their voices unique. They're not necessarily pretty voices, but they are, they're, they're, they're singing the melody. They're singing the right notes. It's just that the timbres of the voices are all very different. And that's what I mean by the difficulty of pop music. Pop music asks you to be much more original than being an opera singer. So uh, well, you have to develop like your own al- sound. Sure. Well, it sounds like this album, Songs from Inside, which seems to be inspired by the quarantine. I mean, you wrote and recorded this during the quarantine over the past couple months. Do you feel that a pop voice is more of the appropriate voice to express what you're feeling about the quarantine right now? Well, it's not exactly... um, all statements on the on the virus or anything like that. I mean, it was written during the quarantine. I wrote it because I was uh, I've been stuck inside, and it was the first opportunity I've had to have this long of a period where I could put my mind to writing a body of work. And I I, I just put the outfit together. I just put the, the the iMac and the Garage Band and the keyboards and the drum machines and all that. I just got it installed when the virus hit. Um. But but none of the songs are particularly about uh, the virus. There's one anti-Trump song on there, which is one of the earlier ones that I wrote, and that sort of covers a lot of ground as far as the virus is concerned. Um, I also wrote a, a virus book, uh, but that's not on the album. Uh, I released it just on YouTube, um, sort of a comic relief sort of thing. So the album is more a... Um, I'm 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 sort of um, giving kudos to the fact that uh, the virus kept me inside long enough for me to be able to write a whole album's worth of work. So while a lot of people were staying at home binge watching Netflix, you were creating a whole new album. Yeah, I had odd hours. I mean, I watched my share of Netflix as well, but uh, I was <laughs> writing between usually usually 11 p.m. and six in the morning. And uh, I'd finish up around five or six in the morning with whatever song I was finishing or starting, and uh, and then email drafts of each new version of each uh, produced version to friends and my girlfriend and all that to get opinions about what they thought. And uh, I was sort of altering things along the way, adding vocals, taking pieces out, changing this, changing that, and uh, perfecting well, each song until I got it to where I wanted it. Well, it seems like one positive thing the quarantine and stay-at-home has done is it's given people a chance to complete projects they've been, you know, holding off on. You know, they keep saying, oh, if I had a big chunk of time, I would do this. Is this something that had been brewing with you for quite a while? Well, I had been planning to put together the gear, and so it it was just lucky that I had actually gotten the iMac that I wanted and I got the, uh, the programs that I wanted and, and the keyboard. 
And so all the, all the hardware was available and the software was, was finally was just sitting there. And, and then March was on us and okay, I, I was able to get started. Um, I had, yeah, I had at least three or four projects. I, I was surprised. I was surprising myself that I was, that I was generating as many new songs and lyrics. I, I learned that uh, I had tried to adapt. I've written so many songs over the years, but many of them haven't been produced. So I was trying to dig up old songs and try to adapt them. And it just didn't want to work. I mean, the only time whenever I came out with a song I liked it was something that was fresh and new that I had made up that evening. It was not the songs that I was trying to rehash and uh, and reconstruct. So I'm sticking with that uh, with that paradigm now. I'm not going to try to go back and try to make any of my old creations live. I'm just going to work on new stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I'm, um, uh, in- well, I'm intrigued by the name Impresario. Was that something you created <laughs> so you you could give yourself an identity away from opera? Did that like free you up by giving that other name to it? Well, actually, it brings me closer to opera than I than I could have because impresario is a term that is used in opera. It's known very well in opera. Um, I wanted to distance my my name basically from the project because I have a Polish American name, which is kind of uh, you know like a hundred proof vodka, and uh, <laughs> I thought that. It, didn't lend itself as well to uh, to, to videos and to, uh, to to mass media. So I wanted to find a name to sort of put in front of myself, just like um, Trevor Horn, you know, took Art of Noise and used that. And um, Alan Parsons took the Alan Parsons Project. You know, they they make up a name to uh, you know to, to to be a sort of a cover. An impresario is something that I have been for for many years. I mean, an impresario is usually somebody who's who's running an opera company, or patronizing an opera company, or making a production work. So, it, people have called me an impresario for many years. So I figured it would well, be a good name to uh, to identify myself by, instead oh, of sure, my sure. Polish well, name. Well, it's interesting you mentioned those. Uh... Those people, uh, Trevor Horn and Alan Parsons, because it sounds like you're influenced by a lot of like you know the '70s classic rock, like the Pink Floyd, Rush, ELO. I mean, what are the influences that you put into this album? Um, well, part of it is you know I'm still learning my program and I'm still growing. I mean, every song that I've been doing has been getting more complicated and more. Uh, you know, but you can't, uh, you have to grow like that. You know, I can't keep going back and changing. Like I got to move on from the material and I'm very happy with, with all these songs. Um, so a lot of the style is, is uh, the styles that I was able to, to manifest, you know, uh, some styles I can't manifest yet because I haven't learned digitally how to, how to uh, put them, to get them down, to get the tracks down. But um uh, Blue Eyed Soul and R&B and mainstream pop have always been stuff that I've gravitated towards. So, yeah, I think that's why the material is coming out. I'm learning how to record my voice in different ways. I mean, if you, I don't know if you listen to the whole CD or not, but, um, you know, Bingo Bingo is certainly not my mainstream our, our Blue Eyed R&B voice. You know, I was, I was making an ac- a, um, Hispanic accent. 
on the on the on the single because it's a comedy song. Um, mm-hmm. So you'll hear a lot of different kinds of voices on there as well. I'm singing with a, with a opera voice, with a with a comic voice, with a with a with an R and B voice. And I'm learning as well what works and what doesn't work. You know, some things I like a little better, some things I don't like as much. And I'm, I'm going to try to move forward more in the vein of the first song, Living in My Dreams. I think that is where I'm the most comfortable with sort of a, of a, a, a driven beat. I'm, if you remember Alexander O'Neill, he was another favorite of mine from the right, 80s and 90s. R&B singer, right, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis you worked with. Uh, yeah, and... Um, I simply read um, Hucknall, uh, but I mean, you couldn't have a more opposite voice. He's a very high tenor, um, but that's, and Carol Hall, of course, I'm a Hall & Oates fan. So, um, you know, all the, the, the hooks and the, 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 the little, you know, people tell me I put a little too much of that stuff in there. I'm trying to strip things away a little more because the modern music is, is, not as, um, is not as full of all that digital uh, stuff, but I'm, that's that's the sound I gravitate towards. So that's what I've been doing. Well, I'd love to hear your take on this because there's a whole kind of little niche where you have like an opera singer, a classical singer, and maybe their record label says, "Hey, you know, do an album of standards or do an album of pop hits." And I think there's always a little at odds because they generally do the pop hits in a classical style, but they just can't quite shake their style. So they're kind of stuck in this limbo. They're not quite singing pop. They're not quite singing opera, but you're kind of, you know, a little self-conscious. And I remember back, who was it? Like Renee Fleming, you know, famous opera singer. I think she put out an album of standards or pop a while back. And I think they're even trying to regroom her a little bit saying, oh, here's, you know, the more commercial side of Renee Fleming. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think, you know, it's the packaging that maybe makes it a little odd or just that pop audiences aren't used to hearing that kind of voice singing those familiar songs? Well, you know, um, a lot of it has to do with um, with the nature of the voice itself. You have a voice that's that's, that's extremely trained in the opera voice versus a voice that is not trained in the pop voice. And you're asking one to cross over to the other side and the other one to cross over to the other side, the opera singer to cross over to pop and the pop singer to cross over to opera. And neither side is, is able to fully shake the uh, rudiments of where their voice originates from. And the problem is, is that the music is it's sort of like pop music is sort of like playing golf. You know, it's not the player so much as it is the, the, the hole. You know, each hole has its own difficulties. You know, you got to get through the rough. You got to you got to go through the water. You got to get by the trees. And the music, the terrain of the music is is easy or difficult. And, and with classical music and opera music, the terrain is very difficult. And the voice must be trained to navigate those passages. Whereas a pop voice is not trained enough to be able to navigate that. Usually we're talking about high notes. Because a high note is what it asks the most of an untrained voice, is to try to go from a low note and jump up to a high note. As an opera singer, we're trained to do that with technical ease. A pop singer can easily avoid that because they can just write a song where they don't sing any high notes. 
Mm-hmm. So when you listen to uh, Renee Fleming, I heard that album that you're talking about. She did a cover of Tears for Fears, uh, Crazy, Crazy World or Crazed World or one of those. And um, the problem with Renee in that CD was that she was holding on to her opera technique. And what we do as opera singers is that we, we um, insulate the voice against, against wear and tear, which means a pop singer will scream when they go up. And especially like mm-hmm. a heavy metal singer, and uh, they will scream a note out. Opera singers never will do that because we have trained ourselves to use a different technique to, to sidestep the wear and tear on the voice. So whenever you hear Renee on that album go up for a high note, she pops into what we call an opera, the, the passaggio. The passaggio is a passageway in the back of the throat that we learn to manipulate as opera singers to, modu- to modulate sound so that high notes go up without any, without any uh, difficulty. It's spreading. It's a matter of spreading. So pop singers will spread up on top, and opera singers do not spread. And she refused to try to leave the technique. She refused to abandon her opera technique to sing some of those songs. And you could tell because she never took a chance. And in a pop singer, always takes a chance. They go up and they scream. They might crack. They might, they might hit a bad sound. But they at least go up and they let the voice go. And they, they open it up to damage, actually. They open their voices up to, to damage. That's why Steve Perry after a number of years, wore his voice out. He couldn't sing anymore, and he needed to step away. And many singers cancel gigs because they, their voices, they have laryngitis. Why do they have laryngitis? Because they're screaming all the time. And they're not, they don't know the techniques by which to sidestep that. Like my teacher, Seth Riggs, he was teaching Nine Inch Nails, and they scream and he was teaching them not how to sing correctly, but how not to hurt the voice by screaming, which there is a way of doing it. Sorry. I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm sort of going on and on, but no, no, that's uh, very intriguing. And and I think it's interesting to know the strengths of all different genres of music, but it just makes me think um, that we won't anytime soon be hearing Renee Fleming doing a Janis Joplin tribute album. No, yeah, that's the thing. And, and there's, there's also a snobbery and a bias on the opera side for singers attempting, for opera singers to attempt to move over into those genres. They look down on them for doing that kind of thing because they think the music is so, you know, crude or whatever. And uh, I've had my disagreements, you know. Um, classical people don't particularly like electric guitars. And I say, you know, there's nothing more beautiful than David Gilmore doing his solos in some of those Floyd songs. I mean, it's just gorgeous, symphonic, operatic uh, sounding material. I mean, a lot of the Pink Floyd from the, from the early 70s and even the stuff from the Division Bell from the 90s after, after Waters left is still operatic in its nature. And he is the voice. I mean, that David Gilmore's guitar is that sweeping, beautiful, high voice that gives Pink Floyd its sound. So the snobbery is misplaced. And I think it's, it's myopic and uh, ill-informed. Um, well, it is, well, it is refreshing to hear that from your point of view with your training and, you know, you being so knee-deep in the opera world. You know, I think one person that I thought kind of did it right by creating her own niche 
with Sarah Brightman, who had this, you know, we think of her on Broadway, but also very classical. But I think she kind of merged it with a new age sound, or she just brought this kind of her um, goddessy kind of persona to it. And I think she created her own niche within that that wasn't quite opera, but wasn't quite pop music. Yeah, there's a few that are out there. Bocelli, um, Bocelli as of late, has been veering more and more closer to real mm-hmm. opera. I called him a popera singer for many years because his voice was a little bit too light and airy and his technique was not strong enough, and he was sort of copping out with some of the arrangements that he was using. But 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 I've heard him over the past few years as he gets old now, and he seems to have really buckled down and um, invested a lot more into the opera technique. But people like Sarah Brightman, they're straddling this fence that is uh, is so difficult. They deserve a lot of respect. I mean, I break most singing down into four categories, pop, which, it, which contains rock and easy listening and all that, jazz, Broadway, and opera. Those are the four real major groups of singing. And for me, the hardest of the four, the most destructive and the most dangerous of the four is Broadway. Mm-hmm. Because Broadway asks you to do everything that an opera singer does, do it like a pop singer. They, the, the composers do not compose primarily to to the voices they compose sort of stupidly uh to and they force the singer to try to scream their voices out in order they have the belt you've heard of the belt you know singers well, the belt, power they ballad teach the belt. The, the, well this whole power ballad thing that seemed to get big with wicked that you know even, even the the slow soft songs you have to belt them out now that type of singing to me is the most destructive type of singing for for any age. But for young singers getting started, they're they're not only learning bad technique; they're learning that that is the technique they should they should use. It's like you're handing someone a rotten apple, and you're saying this is what you should eat, because it's not good for the voice. It's not healthy for the for the for the mechanism of the voice. It destroys the mechanism of the voice, and you're asking them to do it industrially, night after night after night, eight shows a week. It is, I mean, opera, in opera world, we won't do two shows back to back. We either have a cover or there's a night off. But in Broadway, they, they, it's like they're whipping a horse in Central Park. You know, they're saying, keep singing, keep singing, keep singing wrong, keep singing destructively, and we'll pay you, you know, this, you know, this amount. And uh, they don't even pay them greatly. You know, I don't think the pay is so wonderful on Broadway or for the musicals. But um, to me, that's, if singers are going to watch out, it's got, it's got to be the, um, the Broadway technique. Because jazz is so natural. Of, of the four types, jazz is the one where you have to be the most of a natural. Because the jazz community won't accept you if, you don't, if you're not real. You have to be a real jazz singer. You've got to feel it in order to sing jazz correctly. I mean, you can be a BS jazz singer and, you know, try to sing jazz, but nobody really wants to hear anybody who tries to sing jazz. <laughs> they want to hear a jazz singer who can really sing jazz. <laughs> no, I hear you. you. You can't fake your way in, in the jazz world. Well, here's a, a serious question for you. 
I think yeah. you have a unique perspective being both the founder and general director of Nickel City Opera. So you get to see, you know, from a more, you know, authoritative standpoint, you know, young singers wanting to break in, people auditioning, people out of school. And, you know, I don't like to bash millennials, but I do like to get a perspective on, you know, the new generation and what you see. So when you see these, you know, bright, eager new singers coming out of school, what do you like about them, but what do you see that, you know, have they taken any of the bad values of maybe expecting too much too soon from their careers? Well, the difficulty with the whole picture with them coming out of school is that the whole system itself is backwards because you have so many voice teachers who become voice teachers because they can't have a career, because they didn't try to have a career, and thus they're already teaching from a perspective of, uh, of having a deficit. They don't have the real-world experience, and then the people who have the real-world experience aren't teaching. They're out there having the real-world experience. So you've got this dichotomy of teachers in schools and, and uh, adjudicators who only have half the knowledge that they need to be ad- able to adequately train these singers because the people who really should be training them are, are the ones that are out there actually working and they don't have time to train them. <laughs> so that's the first problem. The second problem is, is that the mentality behind education has shifted. So everybody wants to be a perfectionist nowadays. It's either perfection or it's the opposite. It's uh, path everybody. So either you're trained never to make a mistake or you can make all, every mistake in the book and they'll still give you a B and get you out of college. So those two things don't work either. You know, I believe that making mistakes is the foundation for building the best technique. Because if you are always afraid of making a mistake when you sing, you'll keep being afraid of making mistakes when you sing. But if you learn how to sing through the mistakes and make them and fall down and then learn how not to make them, that's what I'm not seeing in a young generation of singers. I'm seeing singers that are so afraid to do the wrong thing that they put themselves in a tiny little box and they're afraid to try this or to try that. And I went to an academy where I had somebody teaching me who taught me how to try things and to not be afraid to crack. You shouldn't be afraid to crack. If you're going to take a high note, the only way you're ever going to get through the crack is by continuing to crack until you stop cracking. Otherwise, you're always going to be afraid of cracking on stage. I don't crack anymore because I learned how to navigate the top of my voice. But other singers, they just are too afraid to try to do these things. You need to get out there and you need to take a chance on stage in front of people. And uh, a lot of singers are very timid. They're very shy. You know, don't get into this business if you're timid and shy. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You know, you've got to learn how to be tough. And uh, you've got to learn how to take chances and get in front of people or else you're not going to, especially in the classical market, because it's such a difficult market anyway. If you don't have all the goods, you're probably not going to make it. So if you're going to make it, you've got to throw mud a lot of mud and you got to keep throwing mud so that it sticks. Sorry, I'm going on and on. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a base question. Cause you know, you talk yeah. about sometimes you got to, you got to pay your dues. You're not an instant star. And even after school, you have to develop your voice even more. 
But it seems like for a bass, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always heard that, you know, the bass voice takes longer to mature. So some people mm-hmm. pop out young, and their voice is just what, you know, that opera company wants. It's young, it's bright and fresh. And yet for a lot of, you know, basses, they they may have to take a lot longer to mature and they have to, I think, have a little more endurance. What do you think? Yeah, um, it's true that when I was young, they said, wait until you're 50. You know, you'll really be good then, you know. And then until I got to be 50, I had to try to sing roles where I was singing people in their 50s. And so the, the temptation is is to sing older, to try to make the voice sound older. Um, and that's a mistake because uh, you'll hurt your voice that way. Um, so I think that really it comes down to a matter of, uh, of the genre. For instance, you know, better to sing Handel and Mozart and Baroque music when you're younger. And then as you're starting to get into your 40s and 50s, start focusing a lot more on Verdi and Wagner and Puccini. Because the music gets thicker and harder and heavier the later you get, the earlier music is light, the later music is heavy. And for a bass, yeah, there is a bias. You know, everybody wants sopranos and tenors to be young and beautiful. And for a bass, you're miscast because most of the characters you're playing are old men or authoritarian figures. So I've grown into, now I'm at at the age where I'm supposed to be able to play everything because the voice is exactly where it's supposed to be. And I'm the right age now to play all the characters that are there. So this should be my prime for the next 15 years until I'm, until I'm in my mid-60s. A very good place to be. Well, we're not going to wrap up quite yet, almost, but before we do, I want to make sure people know where to find you and songs from inside online. So where should people go? Well, it's coming on almost all the platforms. I don't have a list of all of them, but to Spotify for sure, and uh, iTunes, and Napster, and I mean, there's a whole list uh, all the way down. We're going to have um, TwinFishRecords.com uh, or .org, I think it's .com, up soon. It's not up yet, but TwinFish Records is what they could look for, uh, for where the, where the CD is available. And then there'll be um, information on there. Uh, if you want to get a physical CD, I don't know how many people are ordering regular physical CDs anymore, but we'll have an email address where they can order that, and um, and they can and then there'll be videos as well on YouTube that will also have links. We've got one video up now for "What Kind of Man Are You," and "Living in My Dreams" will go up over the next uh, week, week or so on YouTube, and that's really the single uh, "Living in My Dreams." Excellent. Well, I do encourage people to seek that out in your website, uh, and they will discover on your website you're a bit of a renaissance man. You not only have you know, everything we've talked about, but you've published many books, and and this is what I want to kind of wrap up with. You are also a podcaster, for lack of a better word, although this sounds like much more than just an interview podcast. You um, are doing something called the Strange Case of Igor Lukovsky. And from what I gather, yes. you're kind of bending the genre, combining opera and storytelling. Um, what can you tell me about that? 
Well, actually, I was at I was in a performance of the Magic Flute at the uh, in in Canada uh, about six or seven years ago. And in the third act, there's a scene where the baritone who plays Papageno, who's the Birdman, um, he's very depressed and he's going to commit suicide and he's going to hang himself on a tree. Which it's it's kind of melodramatic and it's comic. But we started hearing yelling in the house and up on the third tier, some woman was screaming at the stage, don't do it. Life is worth living. Don't kill yourself. And she tried to jump out of the third tier of the opera circle and they stopped her. And then there was an article in the paper the next day that she had been on meds and things like that. So I remembered that very vividly. So the basis for this uh, podcast is that uh, Igor is a, uh, is an avid opera fan who undergoes bouts of depression and, he, and he, in the beginning of the podcast, he is the one who almost jumps off the top tier. He starts yelling. He's, he's at a performance of the Magic Flute, and he sees that scene. And uh, they stop him, and he's end up, he ends up being um, incarcerated in a, in, a, in a mental ward. And he starts having uh, talks with, uh, with the psychiatrist. And uh, the podcast is really his, his, his conversations and his memories of opera and there's snippets of, of opera. And then there's a story that unfolds between him and a lost love that uh, he's trying to reunite with. And that creates new music in it. And there's 10 episodes. Or, you know, we, We're just finishing the first episode. All 10 episodes are written. And we're putting the voice, voice actors together. And uh, the music is the hard part because you know we're talking about rights and public domain and things like that. But that's the, so the, any the core idea of the story. Of- Okay. Any idea of when this is going to debut? Well, the, we we want to release the first episode as we're starting the second, to, and then then we're going to probably wait after the first or second to get the rest of them. I'd say probably within the next next month, the first one will be available. And we're also looking for funding. Are you there? Oh, I'm here. Oh yeah, I heard a beep. Sorry, I heard a beep. I thought I lost you. Um, and we're, we're, we'll be looking for funding from uh, opera patrons because we're we're starting a, a opera theater of Los Angeles. Um, we were going to do a production in January, but now with the virus, we're not sure if we could actually do a live production. So we're going to put our efforts into this podcast as sort of our first real production, and it's in cooperation with the Nickel City Opera, which I've been running for 12 years out of Buffalo. So the two of them together, we're going to sort of release it under so- that auspices. So it sounds it's going to be like a radio theater, but with also um, opera music that you've recorded just for the podcast? No, I'm trying to use actual recordings that are some are public domain. I'm trying to make them as, as good of recordings as I can, full stereo. I don't want to use stuff from 1930s. I don't want to have monophonic, you know. Um, I'm, I'm currently on two labels. I'm on the Noxos label on Night at the Opera, and I'm on the New World Records on a collection of Victor Herbert songs. So I have um, ties to those record companies, and I've been talking to Noxos about getting the rights, letting them let me use some excerpts from it. I want it to be, I want the podcast to be a tour, opera newbies, to, to hear some of the greatest hits but hear it in, a, in an entertaining way when it's part of a story as opposed to just being hit over the head with opera in its raw form. So well, it's kind of like a getting to know you, about, you know, an introduction. 
Right. I don't think I've ever heard of a podcast doing anything quite like that. I mean, radio theater has really taken off and is popular, but I've never heard of anyone doing it quite like you're planning on. Well, did you listen to any of it? There is an excerpt available on my website. No, but when we hang up here, I am. Is it going to... Is it going to kind of give the tone of, you know, what you're going for the full season? Yes, you'll 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 be able to figure out where I'm going. I mean, it's about a 17-minute excerpt of the first 17 minutes of the first episode. It's uh, it's on and my website, long? Valerian Raminsky. Hmm? And how long do you uh, want each episode to be? It looks like they're going to be between 35 and 50 minutes. They run pretty long. Oh, wow. Uh, the, the, the further we get into the story, I mean, the 10 episodes, the ninth and 10th episode are very long. I mean, at least the synopsis of I have the whole 10 episodes all charted out, and the, the last two are, like, super duper because it's like the finale of this big journey that happens. And I'm integrating a lot of things in there. I'm taking, I'm taking symbolism from some operas, I sort of based part of this on that movie uh, Don Juan DeMarco with Johnny Depp mm-hmm. and Marlon Brando, where you've got the the psychiatrist who's being affected by his patient, and the patient is changing his life. And so the psychiatrist is being affected by this opera lover, and he doesn't have any arts in his life, and he starts changing, and his marriage gets better because of the influence of this patient that he has so uh, i could cite a lot of other references i've got at least three or four things going on in there from from historical sources <laughs> so this project so, brings together a lot of your skills your you know things you like to do i know you also do voiceovers voice acting you know what's your advice for someone that wears a lot of hats like you. I know we're always told, concentrate on one thing. How do you juggle being proficient at so many things? What's your advice with that? Um, well, again, that's impresario. You know, that means you can do a lot of things. Um, but I'd say you have to deal with your core. You know, I think that um, growing as a, in general, you know, like they talk about um, artificial intelligence, and they talk about artificial mm-hmm. general intelligence. Now, artificial intelligence means you can be a chess master chess player, but you can't do anything else. Um, but artificial general intelligence means you can do everything. So, you know, uh, a lot of people develop artificial intelligence in the sense that they learn how to do one thing very well, but then they're not well-rounded. You know, they don't they don't know how to cook. They don't know how to clean the house. They don't know how to you know, do their taxes. They don't know how to, you know, there's a, they, they, they're able to do one thing really good and then everything else they kind of suck at. I'd say, you know, you really need to work at yourself. And if you can work at your core, you know, read a lot of books, become smart, you know, watch the news, keep up to date with what's going on. Um, have, invest in your curiosity. And if you don't have curiosity, get curiosity. You know, because I think if you build the center, then it's going to naturally branch out, you know. And again, I took on a very difficult prospect of running an opera company. 
And when you do that, you get, you show yourself, you learn what you're capable of. Taking on a hard task shows you what you're capable of or not capable of. I know the things that I'm not good at, but uh, I seem to have developed an ability now in my early fifties where I, I can do what I put my mind to do. It may not be a work of genius, uh, but I can, I can get it done. I sit down and have this finishing, you know, a lot of people, they start, but they don't finish. And you got to finish what you start, you know, even if it's, you know, it's not a Rembrandt, but it's yours, you know, you don't know what it's going to be. You don't know how people are going to take it. You know, some people really, it might be better than you think, but you're never going to know if you don't finish it. You know, that's what, with the writing the books, you know, I, I, I've been a book reader for my whole life, but I never wrote anything. Uh, published until I was in my 40s because I said, well, I think I can do this, you know, and I did it. And maybe it's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's okay. I did it, you know. So anyway, I think a lot of people underestimate themselves out there. There's a lot more capability if you just, they're afraid. They're afraid of being criticized. You got to throw that out in the garbage. Don't worry about what people think about you, you know, just do it. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what people think. So that's the only way you're going to get anything done. 